The day-to-day seed work, I think, is like where a lot of that theorization happens, right? I think is is where like you end up rethinking a lot of your assumptions about yourself as a human, right? <laughs> yeah, it's less like is the data crunchable or is the okra pod crunchable. <laughs> <laughs> you can use that if you want. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh, uh, keep that one in. Keep that in. I was just whacking it Welcome back to Seeds and Their People. I'm Chris Bolden Newsom, farmer and co-director of Sankofa Farm at Bartram's Garden in sunny southwest Philadelphia. And I'm Owen Taylor, seed keeper and farmer at True Love Seeds. We are a seed company offering culturally important seeds grown by farmers committed to cultural preservation, food sovereignty, and sustainable agriculture. This podcast is supported by True Love Seeds and now also you. We just started a Patreon so that you can help support our seed keeping and storytelling work for as little as $1 a month. Not to get all numbersy, but we already have 18 patrons covering about an eighth of our monthly costs of making this podcast, with an average of $4 per month per patron. Thank you all so much. At this rate, we're hoping to find 125 more patrons. We also received a special donation from Mel in Canada, who writes... Thank you, True Love Seeds, for your inspiring and informative show. I hope other listeners will continue to donate and support to keep it coming. Shout out to my farm moms at Sweet Diggs Farm. Smiley face. Thanks so much, Mel. Thank you also to our patrons, Kai, Megan, Julie, Patrick, Amy, Tracy, Alishiba, Joe, Dan, Bill, Zaid, Deborah, Stephanie, my mom, Sarah, Cecilia, Lauren, Gian, and D. This episode features an interview with Chris Keefe, who, as you'll hear in the interview, was an apprentice with True Love Seeds, well, first a volunteer, then an apprentice, and now a seed grower for our catalog and friend of ours, and also is working to kind of study our network of growers and learn more about how it works and how it could be better and how to represent it to the world. This is part of a, this idea that we had to start interviewing our mentees and apprentices and former apprentices. So this is the first in that series with more coming soon. So yeah, before we jump into the episode, I wanted to kind of hear some reflections from you, Chris, having listened to the interview. Yeah, well, it's a, another great episode. Of course, anytime we start talking about seeds and people, it, it, it always is powerful and has the potential to go in so many different wonderful directions. I'm excited for people to listen to the whole interview, but there were definitely parts that really stood out to me. I think Chris talks about the seeds on the uh, floor, sort of the, the 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 seeds that fell on the floor during processing at True Love headquarters. It's sort of a, his fascination with these seeds that are now all mixed up and, and, and are 
now ready to be swept up and 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 cast aside. But he takes a special interest in those seeds that fell on the floor, and I think that really spoke to me uh, in a very powerful way. I'm also fascinated by seeds that fall on the floor. Of course, you know, in in, in a home with two farmers and seed keepers, we have seeds on the floor all the time. And I think about that and, and I will often sweep them up and throw them into the backyard with a prayer. So yeah, I think that that was one part of the interview that really fascinated me talking about, you know, what does it mean to have all of these sort of mixed up seeds uh, and, 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 and that he actually, you know, taken and grow them out sometimes and just to see what comes up. And I think that that for me was a, a powerful reminder that all of us are the results of scattered peoples, you know, scattered seeds uh, in some way. And yeah, so there was just something really beautiful and powerful about that uh, to me. Yeah, it's like a parable, you said. Yeah, yeah, it was. It, it's, it was like a sort of a seed parable. You know, in, in the Bible, there are lots of parables and lots of, of plant-related parables, but it certainly, certainly sort of reminded me sort of the parable of the sower in the Gospel of Matthew. And it also reminded me, too, of the parable where uh, Jesus is talking about uh, the woman who loses a coin and turns the whole house upside down trying to find it. And when she finds that coin, she has this big old party and invites all her girlfriends over because she found her money. And there's something about those seeds that we don't really maybe recognize as of value because they've fallen. You know, they've lost their purpose. They've lost, you know, their intended destiny. But they actually do hold great value and, and great price. And, you know, and just like I think all of us, so I think particularly as a, as a, as a you know, a son of the African diaspora that spoke to me, seeds on the floor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know <clears throat> another thing that stood out to you is that uh, Chris Keeve is also studying the kind of geography of the movement of seeds. And that's mm -hmm. their attachment to this work now, both, you know, being a seed grower, but also kind of a theorist or an anthropologist or a geographer. And I know that a lot of your work has been kind of both as a farmer and as a thinker. And I'm wondering like what stood out to you about that. I mean, I think the movement of seeds again, I and mean, it's, it's similar to, to that story. I think they're kind of connected, you know, the seeds that fell off the table onto the floor, you know, they, they, they've shifted, you know, uh, uh, geographical borders also in a way, right? They were intended to go into certain packages, uh, to go into to, to certain containers and to have a name and to have this very definite story, but they fail. And I think in the same way, you know, I think it's very fascinating to think about Chris's work uh, with seeds and, and, and seeds that move beyond the borders of where they come from. That's always been something that really fascinates me. You know, I think of it especially as a cook. This morning we just um, made a curry for dinner. And, you know, I was, as I'm throwing all of these different vegetables, you know, and my curries just contain whatever vegetables we got. And so we've had a big harvest of potatoes and carrots and onions and garlic and tomatoes and everything. And so as I'm chopping all this stuff up and putting it all in the pot, I realized that these come from vastly different places, you know, continents, you know, they had to cross oceans, uh, you know, in centuries and, and so many hands to get here. So, yeah, I think the, the, you know, I think that Chris's work talking about seeds, particularly seeds that, you know, sort of have changed their 
their story, their intended story, um, because they've moved beyond, uh, you know, the places uh, where they come from. Uh, again, I mean, I think it's just another powerful way that seeds reflect people. And yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as an African-American, Afro-Celtic person, um, you know, there, there's a lot of stories in me, some, you know, that, that, that are powerful and exciting and, 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 and joyful and, and so many others, you know, that are not exciting uh, or, or not uh, rather, you know, joyful. But all of it is what goes into making me who I am. And that's the same for every uh, single other human being. All of that is, is, is super fascinating to me. And I'd love to find out more about uh, what what he's doing and how he talks about that. Um, and I hope that that fascinates you all as you're listening to it and, and encourages you to explore more about uh, the geography of seas uh, moving across borders and the taking on of new stories. That seems like a great intro to the episode, but I want to ask you another question. <laughs> as two Chris's from the South, part of the African diaspora, both of you, and I'll say that Chris Keeve uses he and him and they and them pronouns, so we're going to alternate. You come from different parts of the South and have very different stories. And Chris Keeves from Florida, as you'll hear, and talks about citruses and mangoes and, and so on and, and things that grow there that, that aren't necessarily growing in the Mississippi Delta. And now they farm and live in Kentucky, another part of the South, from both of those places and work with black farmers there. So I'm just curious your reflections. I know that you and I stopped in uh, Florida when we were visiting a uncle. That's all right. We live in a city. We live in a city and there are city noises behind us as part of the story. <laughs> okay. Uh, so we were in Florida and we stopped at the Zora Neale Hurston Museum and, and got a Florida food book kind of written by her. So I'm just curious, just if you could speak for a minute on kind of these connections to the South and your kind of mutual interests in Southern black food. Yeah, I mean, well, the South is a big kingdom. It's a, a vast uh, kingdom and it's a patchwork of different cultures, different dialects. When you are a Southerner, you can hear these differences and they stand out very starkly, even when we recognize the things that really connect us, and which is something really interesting to me. I don't know. I mean, not being from the North, I wonder if, if if Yankees have the same kind of like sense of connectedness to, you know, to, to, to other um, Yankees, you know, from different parts of it. But but it is always, to me as a Southerner, it's always super exciting to hear about how other parts of the South, other cultures in the South live, uh, what they eat, how they speak. Yeah, and certainly in the Mississippi Delta, we, we we didn't have any orange trees or or grapefruit or any anything like that. And I, and I always have always sort of joked that in Florida, everything that we can grow grows there uh, plus more. And then you know, and then talking about Kentucky, you know, uh, a whole part of the South, you know, with a completely different and very very distinct culture and and dialect. It is very exciting to me to sort of hear the differences, especially. I think Chris comes from collard green country. I think that where he is from, that the rain and green is the collard. And I come from mustard and turnip green country, where collards sort of take second place, if not third place, you know, a lot of times. So that's always exciting to hear 
uh, how the other half eats. But yeah, I mean, I think that that hearing and knowing these very distinct ways of being Southern and especially being, you know, African-American Southern fascinates me because I also remember that we are one people, you know, I mean, most Africans in, in, in North America came here through one of those ports uh, in uh, Southeast, you know, and then we, we spread out and, 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 you know, migrated or were pushed, you know, into other places. So I recognize that Mississippi black culture is relatively new and recent, certainly compared to Floridian culture in general and black Floridian culture. And so it is very fascinating to see like what, what are the things that connect us and how are we different? So yeah, I love all that. And I add it to my teaching, you know, when I'm teaching about diasporic culture, it just really reminds me that we are a diaspora. We are, you know, a, a, a people of, of sort of scattered seeds that again have moved past our borders. And it's super interesting to, 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 to listen to and to learn about. Great. Well, let's get into it. So we're going to start out with an interview last fall, 2021, with Chris Keeve at our farm, True Love Seeds, when they were visiting from Kentucky for our annual growers gathering of all the farmers that grow for our catalog. And we'll be walking through the field, checking out some plants that are near and dear to them. So let's get into it. Thanks for listening. So these are the subtle sounds of Chris Keeve picking. Spilanthes. Spilanthes. <laughs> <laughs> when you eat it, 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 feels, it feels like sour Skittles taste. Maybe it tastes like sour Skittles feel. It's like, a, it's like an electric buzz. And also I just love the sort of like very practical use of having like a, a toothache plant and sort of the medicinal use. And it gives a lot, and it's very prolific. Um, it's also just like a really stunning, visually, like a sort of flower. I guess True Love has two varieties. They're all kind of a ground cover plant. Um, there is maybe nine inches tall, um, and they produce these br bright yellow button flowers. Um, these little fuzzy. I guess are they inflorescences? Yeah. The sunflower. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're cousin of cousin of the sunflower. They're an aster. Right, so they, they're kind of these bright yellow buttons, and then the bullseye spilanthes, which have these really deep red, I don't know, maybe, maybe like even mauve um, centers um, with the yellow around them, like a bullseye. Um, I just think they're great. I used to do a lot of work around like with like youth gardening, and they're both like really easy to grow, and also like kids would get really into them. Eating even even like just like kind of like one leaf gives you the kind of like sensation. Nice. Can you hear it? Can you hear the feeling? <laughs> I can hear it. <laughs> in what ways have you used it? Mainly medicinally. I currently live in Lexington, Kentucky. And I grow some at home on my little fire escape, my apartment. And I, if I'm having like tooth or gum issues, I'll just kind of like throw some into my mouth on my way out. That's mainly it. I have some dry spilanthes that I haven't done a lot with yet. But I have plans for a tincture. Are there any other plants out here right now that we should visit 
while we are in the field. The Tulsi or the Okra. Okay. Or if they're, I guess the Cowards, what do you think? Well, those are three great things. Where do you want to start? Uh, Okra. Okay, great. Okay, we're entering the okra patch. In the background, you can hear Amira and Ruth harvesting gondules and chit-chatting. Here we are. Here's the okra, the end of the season. Why did we come to the okra? It's one of the seeds that tells my story. It's okra is really a major part, kind of growing up with my family's cuisine. Uh, my mom would always cook with okra, and I just love it. I love the kind of misogynist taste. I think it's a really, it's a really fun plant to grow, especially for seed. Back in like 2017, you gave me some white velvet okra seeds, which these here are not, but you gave me some white velvet okra seeds that I kept for a while. And I gave them all to a friend of mine this season to grow in their backyard. And I've been kind of like coaching them through how to grow them for seed. It's been a really cool experience to kind of like walk them through the process of growing it, deciding on which pods to select for seed and which ones to save, and, and also just being able to renew those seeds and that gift for another, for more seasons in the future. Mm. It's also just a very cool pod. This is actually, my next tattoo is going to be an okra pod, which I'm very excited for. What kind of okra? Likely a white velvet. Oh, nice. Yeah. Can you describe how a white velvet okra pod looks? <sighs> or wh- why did you choose that one? It's just the one I'm most familiar with, and it's the one I've had kind of the most success growing in different places in which I've lived. I can only describe it as like, it's, it's less thick than the whole country. <laughs> it's a little slimmer, it's more streamlined, it's kind of got this like, not furry, it's a... Uh, fuzzy? Fuzzy, yeah. So it got, it's got a very light fuzz around it. Um, looks really cool especially like in the mornings when it's dewy yeah and it doesn't have these ridges really They're not as pronounced right. yeah mm-hmm. i do like these ridges though yeah this is the hill country red we're standing next to right we're looking at it we're looking at a dry pod right now um that has already started splitting open and you could see it's audio but you could see <laughs> the kind of mature seeds rattling around So what did you tell your friend to help them learn to keep the seeds? I told them, grow out their okra, and at some point in the season, if you kind of see one that, like, you really, see like a, like a plant, individual plant, that, you know, maybe it produced the earliest, or maybe it just, like, looks, like, visually the best for you, or maybe you just have, like, some sort of connection to it that you can't put into words, or maybe it tastes the best, mark off that one, um, and the rest you can harvest from, and then that one plant you want to save for seed and so there's going to be a point in the season in which the pods get too big to like really be like great to eat um, but you want to kind of like keep caring for the plant and then at one point the pods will grow to their full size and they will start to kind of turn brown and start splitting which kind of tells you that like it's 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 done pumping you know nutrients and energy into its seeds and that the seeds are probably ready to be harvested and then you kind of take this like kind of crunchy dry brown pod and split it open along the seams and then your seeds will fall out and you can save those. Awesome. What was your friend's kind of favorite part of this process? 
they did um, a text me recently that there is uh, at least one pod that is probably going to make it to seed, which is very exciting. It's kind, of, it's kind of like a different sort of orientation to the plant, I guess, than if you're just growing for food. Like, it's a different kind of, like, care work. They, they seem like they have really kind of enjoyed this, like, new relationship. And also just kind of the project of not just thinking about food for this season, but also food for coming seasons and thinking about, like, you know, being able to save their own seed and then give that seed to other people. Awesome. And just to describe this patch a little, you can see just a few pods at the top of each plant because we've been harvesting them as they fully turn brown and their little stem or umbilical cord to the plant turns brown as as the season goes on. So it's a thin-looking crop now, which was robust like a month ago, full of big leaves, and it's getting gearing up for the fall now, even though it's pumping out some new little yellow flowers and buds. It's kind of on its way out, which is how it goes. It's still beautiful. Where should we go next? We could do the collards or the holy basil or oh. the sorghum, which doesn't, if you oh, tell yeah. my story, I just think it's cool. Great. Well, the collards are under the sorghum. Perfect. uncovering the row cover because we still have some harlequin bugs in the field who love to eat collards. You can see that we've had caterpillars eating them as well. We're going to uncover them fully next week when the harlequins have kind of died back more. A lot of pests after them. Everyone likes collards. <laughs> um, what, what draws you to collards? Oh man, um, it's also, uh, also a food I grew up with. We have collards every Sunday. I love a really like big, dense leafy green. Like, I feel like collards are like not pretentious. They're just you know tasty, and it's like got this really kind of like hearty bitterness to it. What else? So last year, I when I moved to Kentucky, um, so a friend of a friend of mine was a grower for the heirloom collard project that happened last year, last season, um, and just kind of like gave me gifted me like a few varieties for the move. And I kind of planted them where I live now, and I successfully overwintered them, uh, which is like they're, they're biennials. Um, so I overwintered them, and then they went to seed this past season, which is really exciting. And I did not get mature seed uh, because my landlord got rid of them, but I <laughs> they quote unquote like looked, looked like they were done, but which is whatever. But that experience was really fun. And like maybe in some parallel universe, I got some seeds that were like a cross of all these varieties. And, could, and, then, and then would now be seeing kind of what they would produce. Mm. Yeah, I could eat collards forever. How do you like to eat them? Oh, man. I So how I grew up was like kind of like a slow cook with a hand bone in a pot all afternoon, um, which I don't have the patience for. <laughs> where, where does that recipe come from, do you think, originally? My impression is that it's just kind of like how black folks in the South would make collards. Um, just how my mom made them every, every Sunday. And I will usually kind of braise them or saute them. I also maybe with maybe just like separate them with some like broth for a while. But yeah, because I am a very sort of like snappy cook. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> well, these ones are the green glazed collards, which we were growing when you were here. Right. So it's time again. Last time we tried to grow this species on our farm, we planted them too late, and we learned from Mama Ira Wallace at Southern Exposure that they need to grow to the size of your pinky finger 
if they're going to make it through the winter and then know that it's time to flower, to trigger their flowering. So we're hoping, you can see they're pretty thin right now, their stems, that they size up in the next couple months before the deep cold in order to get a good amount of seed, or any seed, next year. Um, so that was helpful to learn from her, from one of our seed-keeping elders. But this is just a beautiful variety, glossy green, and we sometimes uh, some of the more traditional-looking bluish matte ones come out, and we just rogue them away and eat them. They're actually planted like at the... Collard. What's that? I like a matte collard. Yeah, it's good. I like a blue-gray collard. <laughs> <laughs> we put the blue-gray ones at the end on their own, treating them the same under the row cover and the irrigation and everything, and we'll just eat them and enjoy them. But this green glaze is kind of hard to find except for a few catalogs, and Amira particularly likes it, and I like it too. So we're just trying to keep it around, doing our part. Okay, let's check out the Tulsi. Here we are. Is this the Tulsi you, you meant? The, the Kapoor holy basil? Yes, yeah. It's one of five or six holy basils we're, or Tulsis we're growing this year. Probably the most popular one or familiar one for people here. What, what draws you to it? The thing I love about Tulsi is that it's, in one, it, it just like smells amazing. Um, and it's, but it's like unapologetic about taking up space. Mm -hmm. It will readily self-seed and it will spread and kind of like go where it will. And it will just kind of like go where like, go where it will be welcomed. And it's really enjoy plants that do that. <laughs> it really just like is incredible. Sort of like smell and taste. Can you describe the smell? It's... Why don't you take a leaf and maybe it'll trigger the descriptive words. It's like, it's like, it's almost like a confident purple breeze. <laughs> like it smells like, <laughs> I mean that in the best way possible. It smells like you're going to be okay. Like it smells like, like it's late summer and the door is propped open and kind of, you know, the wind is kind of blowing in from the outside and you're just sort of like, letting yourself exist at dusk, you know? It's sweet, but not too sweet. And it's, there's like a little, bit, a little bit of spice in there. It's like it's wrapping you in satin or something. Or silk. Silk is a better word. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thanks. I don't know, I don't know any smell descriptor. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely know what you're talking about. It's like a very calming plant. Yes. Last season, I grew some, just like casually, on my porch. And then when they kind of started dying back, I made a tincture. And I've just been kind of like gifting it to friends. <laughs> and I can open it whenever I need that calming aroma. Nice. Do you save, keep seeds from your plants from the Kapoor Tulsi? I did, yeah. I think last season I was growing Kapoor and Vana together. So I kind of kept those seeds as just like a mix. And then I grew, I started those along with some more like Kapoor and Vana that I knew were Kapoor and Vana because that was part of a project that my friend and I were doing in Lexington of just like starting dozens of, of seeds and giving them away to people who wanted seedlings. I gave a bunch of Tulsi starts to this person who I was connected with. A friend of, friend of mine posted about our project and like this mutual aid group in Lex. So then some people were kind of like contacting me about like various starts I wanted because a lot of them were like kind of harder to find things. And I was kind of like doing little like 
porch job offs at these seed wings. And then I dropped off a bunch of Tulsi to someone and then they kind of like emailed me afterwards. So it was just very kind of like kind email of like how it was so important to their family and like they were looking for us for a long time and all this stuff. It just felt way fun to get to do. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Awesome. Thank you for sharing your connection to these plants right in front of us. But I, I, and that's really the, the focus of the podcast. And it also brings us into like hearing more about you. And I feel like that this is a good time to ask you about your seed keeping journey in general. Yeah. What's your relationship to seed keeping been and where is it going? Let me think. I, I mean, I, I have always been kind of a chaotic gardener, I think, back to when I was like a kid. I think my dad had saved like a corner of the backyard for me to very sporadically grow things sometimes. And it was so I grew up in South Florida. So you can kind of like grow whatever you want. <laughs> I would save like seeds from like oranges that I would eat and try to start those and they and some of those were successful and uh, just like various like random like kind of plants and veggies and then kind of growing up I kind of kind of fell into like various food and ag things and I was really interested like in, like environmental things I was really interested in like seeds as a, as an idea as a concept because uh, it's kind of like small things that do so much work and that like travel in ways that go with human stories and like human movements as well as like sometimes their own movements and their own stories so that makes sense i got into seeds i think through owen's work i'd done some seed work here and there i think college i was um, volunteering with like kind of some prairie restoration stuff and we would do some seed stuff after that i was doing some like food and ag work and i ended up getting really into seeds just through following owen and i kind of tried to start little seed projects so um, at one point, I was working for this urban ag community gardening initiative in Montana that we had like a workshop um, <laughs> about both like seed keeping and like native plants or something. And then I moved to Philly a few years ago and I started volunteering for what was not yet True Love Seeds, what would become True Love Seeds, and just got like really into it. Like, I kind of started thinking through both like kind of like the relations that you form with plants through seed work. Like, it ties you both to like the past and also the future in just really cool ways. Sort of thinking through like community memory and like cultural history and like ancestral foods. I think being from South Florida, there's a lot of unique things being grown, especially the thing of like people of color, especially like black folks in South Florida. My mom was telling me stories about like how there were all these things that people would just like grow in their yards when she was growing up. It also is like tropical fruit trees are growing in people's yards. And that still are, but um, but how like there's, there's so many like plants and fruits and veggies that were readily available in her childhood and her neighborhood that you can't find anymore. Do you remember what any of those things are that are hard to find now? I know there was a variety of there's a purple shelling bean, and there is some type of orange, some type of citrus that was growing in someone's yard <laughs> that she would tell you about. My grandmother, who was her mother. And their in their backyard had I guess what you would now call a food forest. So they have like a lot of trees, and the majority of those trees are like fruit trees. From a very young age, I grew up learning how to pick mangoes on my grandma's mango tree, and also my parents have one too. I grow two varieties. It's grafted. Um, it's really cool. <laughs> they bloom a few weeks apart, so like kind of like one side tree blooms, and then a few weeks later the other side blooms, and one side has ripe fruit, and a few weeks later the other side has ripe fruit. But anyways, so I started getting, getting into seed work outside of home and then ended up hearing a lot more stories from home that, was, that were inspired by that. And then so I ended up 
in grad school uh, studying geography, and I recite seeds in, in my head. <laughs> or I was really fascinated with, with the Paul Ropes and tomato, actually. And I really, really kind of like wanted to dig into how, how those seeds traveled and how they kind of like weave through people's both like seed work and food work and a lot of like radical politics. And that kind of snowballed into like kind of thinking about um, a lot of ideas around the work that people do with seeds, both like the day-to-day work like this here and what that might kind of tell us about like certain like relations between people and like plants and people and like non-humans or whatever. And then also cultural memory and community memory, thinking about like seed projects as alternative sorts of archival practices for people who have not had the privilege of having their stories saved in like quote unquote traditional archives and how like a lot of seed workers about saving those stories through seed, but also bringing back a lot of those stories through seed and kind of seeing in the ways in which, so specifically thinking about like black folks in the South, how seed is, is a way of both thinking through and like finding and like maintaining certain connections to land and to history and how land and history are deeply, deeply intertwined, which also directly impacts people's ability to fortify themselves and their communities for the future, right? Through seed work and through food work. So it's thinking through a lot of that of like kind of like certain historical questions, cultural questions. And then I ended up starting or helping to start um, or just being involved with uh, (laughs) this project in Madison uh, trade Roots Gardens, which was sort of a black diasporic food and seed project. It's like, this is summer 2020. Um, I was working with them in Madison, Wisconsin. That was a lot of fun. So from there, I was kind of thinking about these connections of like growing out ancestral foods, how seeds travel and adapt and how people travel and adapt and how like the movement of seeds and people often occur together, but sometimes separate. Seeds and like stories and, and humans are always moving around each other and like connecting and like disconnecting and reconnecting and so I think a lot of the seed work that I do now lately is thinking through like more informal decentralized sorts of projects and now in Lexington the means of friends started an idea I guess for like a decentralized seed bank mm-hmm. which was inspired by uh, these folks in New Orleans Lobelia Commons who are doing a lot of like decentralized plant nursery work and the idea behind that was thinking through kind of what it looks like to like bring people into like seed projects in which like maybe there isn't a central location to grow things or a central location to like save them even and kind of like what it looks like to coordinate seed work across like a landscape of like kind of very fragmented locations and also like what it looks like for people to do seed work when it's maybe not the main thing they do or maybe not something they have a lot of experience with it was also something i think true love is really good at trying to educate people trying to make seed work more accessible i guess so it's, it's kind of what I work now is tapping into various like little seed projects here and there. Seeds are embedded in your studies, right? You mentioned that a little bit, but I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit, especially for people outside of academia as well as people who are in academia, what that looks like. Yeah, what was my like elevator pitch? In general, I, I tend to focus on the things that people do or don't do with seeds and the things that seeds may or may not do on their own, which you could also call like, quote unquote, like in situ agrobiodiversity conservation. Like a lot of my work has been oriented more towards the human element of agrobiodiversity and the kind of the human and plant relations between among agrobiodiversity. So a lot of it has been about thinking through how, how seeds and how seed work can like provide 
these connections to history, both personal memory as well as community memory and community histories, while simultaneously allowing groups to like grow their own food, right? And to adapt to like unpredictable climate in addition to kind of like finding a certain grounding in the land. So a lot of our work has been about that, especially about kind of what that looks like um, for like black folks in the South. So also some thoughts around how seed work kind of changes your relationship to, to plants or even like your relationships to, like, to other people, right? So it's to think about a lot, how a lot of seed work is focused on cooperation between like both people and people as well as people and plants. So thinking about having to plan around isolation distance or around temporal or seasonal isolation, right? Thinking through the ways in which like seed projects have these sort of like shifting spatial relations, shifting geographies over an entire season. And also how doing seed work oftentimes requires you to have like these really strong cooperative networks with other growers that are like both but both locally and regionally, right? So thinking like work the work like especially that True Love does have having what, what like two dozen growers. Now it's over 50. Over 50 growers, right? So like all these people who have different sorts of relations with seeds, with seed work, are coordinated in this network. So that True Love can like do the work that it does and in providing good seed to people and also to providing like people with like ancestral foods. So I, I guess to give um, background, I'm a second year PhD student in geography um, at the University of Kentucky. So I'm kind of like putting a project together now. <laughs> So like my master's work was a lot. A lot of it was about these like small companies like like True Love Seeds or like uh, Southern Exposure Seed Exchange, as well as formal seed collections that are focused on like historic gardens, sort of this intersection of like historic museum sites as well as botanic gardens and kind of how like that how that work of of doing seed work in a historic garden kind of like reorients your impression of of like history and memory and like living memory you could say or like living archives or whatever. I've been thinking a lot about sort of like the informal side of things, decentralized seed networks, both locally and regionally, and how they kind of might inspire new sorts of seed politics as well as human politics, I guess you could say. I do a lot of like thinking about seeds, but I think like my most, my most like exciting for me intellectual interventions came about just like being at true love and doing the day-to-day work and like kind of like realizing how the things that these like plants were doing and how the things that I was doing with these plants were like causing me to rethink a lot of my own like thoughts about about like a lot of this a lot of this work um and about a lot of like my own ideas and a lot of the literature or, or whatever that I was like working in I genuinely think that people are kind of just like are, are like are, are, are re-theorizing on the spot all the time, right? Um, and how I think this work really pushes you to like rethink your own sort of like idea of what it means to be human. Beautiful. Yeah. I, I'm wondering if we could end on a couple quick questions. Yes. In one, just inspired by what you just said, like your time at True Love, how it made there were moments that made you rethink things. I'm just wondering if you can paint a picture of any of those moments, specific moments for us. So this was summer 2019. This is when Owen first brought out the sound equipment to the farm. Um, And we were walking through, I forgot which variety of peas these were, but we were walking through one 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 of the pea beds. Owen was sort of like teaching us how to identify when the peas 
were mature and ready to be harvested for seed um, because they kind of visually it's it's um, kind of like brown and like dry and then we have to like listen for the crunch and you have to like and if you shake it in a certain way it's like it'll sh- kind of like it shakes in a very particular way when it's like ready for seed visually visually yes and I was thinking about how like one, there's like multiple sorts of like sensory experiences that kind of like are going into like identifying these things that are also tied back to like your own relationship with these plants throughout the entire season, right? Of like of, of seeing them develop, right? Throughout the, the season, but also throughout like previous seasons, right? Um, of like seeing how they behave in different circumstances. Because like ostensibly, it's like, you know, that pea has co evolved over the past like what, 10,000 years with various humans for its own like reproductive success as well as for like human reproductive success right of of being a thing that people eat and save for both you know nutritionally as well as culturally let's think about how like those individual pea pods were sort of like they were letting us know that they were ready right like they were like we will tell you through like sight and sound and touch like we will let you know when we're ready right and how like like lets you step back a little bit like the humans aren't like in charge of the space, like we're just guiding the project, and how like the plants will tell you when when, <laughs> when the seeds are ready, and then you can go for it. Like they got this. No, yeah, that was just like one of my favorite moments on the farm. So I went back and found that audio where we recorded in summer 2019 on the farm, and it was Althea Baird and Amira Mitchell's second year of apprenticeship, and they're there. And it was Maeve Aguilar and Chris Keeves' first year of apprenticeship, and they're there, so you can hear most of their voices and hands working in this little clip. Anyone want to narrate what's happening? We'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) I have a narrator voice. Wait, experiment. Mm -hmm. Oh. Here are some peas. <laughs> we're harvesting them and we're looking for, we're listening for this really crispy, crunchy sound. This one's kind of leathery, not the best. Um, Amira might have one. Oh. Listen to that. Get a load of that. That's <laughs> <laughs> what we want. Why? Because that's how you know that the peas inside are mature seeds that will have the highest germination rate. Nice. Any tips or tricks or thoughts or comments, anybody else? That was an impressive uh, narrator voice. Thanks. Yeah, you're really good at narrating. What happens next after this? With the peas? I take the snails off. Take the snails off. (laughs) (laughs) Then we're going to show them. I I assume. <laughs> well, first, we'll lay them out on like paper bags, labeled, because we have three or four types of peas. So we're going to put them in the seed room where we have pretty low humidity because of a dehumidifier and it's a basement for like a week or two to really dry out. And then we'll shell them. And then we'll germination test them. And then we'll package them. We're both right. We're both right. <laughs> yep. You were 100% right. I summarized. Yeah. And I'm just adding a few more things. 
How much do you have to send out for a germination test? How much seed? Good question. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> Um, so we send it to the Department of Agriculture in Maryland, Annapolis, Maryland, and they want us to send a thousand seeds oh per Lord. harvest. Sorry. But they'll allow us to send as few as 400 seeds. Oh. So, you know, each one of these that we're picking has maybe like six or eight seeds in them. Um, so we really have to grow enough for the germ test and for sharing with people. Wow. Who knew? That's a lot of seed. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. <laughs> Chris followed the story about the pea harvest with another one about tomatoes that they wanted to share. Here it is. Oh, the tomato one. The tomato one, we were, um, I think we were harvesting the Mikado tomatoes for seed, and there were a bunch that were cat-faced, they were doubled, or otherwise kind of like they look weird. So we've been discussing off-typing a lot, and I was intellectually really into the idea of off-typing and like what that means, kind of who gets to decide like what the right luck is. Anyways, and we were kind of like, it was a moment in which we were harvesting these tomatoes and, you know, I think, I think Amira was like, oh, we can't save those for seed because we need to save like the ones that like have this particular like quality look to them or for, for seed. And we had this whole like back and forth, I think, in which I was like really, I really wanted to like save the weird tomatoes. <laughs> oh, there was, uh, there's a Syrian cucumber that had like a lacy coppery kind of like web over it also. And I was like, really fighting to save that Syrian cucumber seeds in the collection. When I was like writing, I got like really, really into this idea of, of like abnormality and off-typing and like what it means to select for one thing and against another thing and kind of like who gets to make that decision. And, it, and I think like a lot of it was kind of coming from like my own like weird fascinations with like abnormality <laughs> like strangeness and like and I was like well what if you, what if you just had a farm that looks like go back to the beginning I've, I have always been a very chaotic gardener and I was like what if I had had a seed farm in which like we just had like off times <laughs> and we're kind of just like deliberately saving a lot of like the weirdest the weirdest things and the, the strange like kind of like mutations I mean these, these are all like ancestral foods right and like you're trying to grow both quality quality food and quality seeds that also like will like look and taste and feel like people remember them right which is like really important then kind of like thinking through like all the things that plants will still do to like, do their own thing and to kind of like push against your own like needs in that in that regard um which i always like really appreciate um when kind of plants are just like actually no we're not gonna <laughs> um we're gonna do we're gonna do our own thing and you know it may not meet like what you want out of us but we're just gonna do our own thing um which i really love when plants do that. <laughs> this goes back to also to like, you know, agronomy for the past like century or whatever around like crop varieties and like plant breeding and like selection, right? And how like how a lot of this is like still kind of like caught up in a lot of like human sorts of politics and how like the kind of weird mutations and off types among the plants can kind of like maybe allow us to embrace the weird 
mutations and off types among the, among like people. <laughs> but yeah, well, it reminds me of a conversation we have sometimes just about this obsession with purity. Yeah. In the seed world, because of this, you know, duty or promise we have to customers to provide a certain seed, but it's a very kind of Eurocentric approach to growing food. Like I've heard from some indigenous friends of mine uh, that it, you know, this is just not how it's always been. Mm-hmm. Like the off types, the abnormalities were not always rejected from these seed crops, and that's often how things shifted and and were shaped over time. And it's it's kind of a modern phenomenon. I will update you that with the Mikado, we've decided to save seeds from all of them. <laughs> cat faced, well, not cat faced so much, but as the doubles, because yeah, we just yeah. figure it's part of how they are and mm-hmm. so we just make sure we isolate them far enough the problem with doubles is the open flowers that right. makes their flowers more open so we worry about hybridization and now we're just sure to isolate them enough that they can be their full selves <laughs> <laughs> um, and they're beautiful and, de- and absolutely delicious especially when they're gigantic like that and it reminds me of my last question it's like maybe a segue because similar to like your your like compassion for the off types and the rejects mm-hmm. i've i've heard noticed that you like to collect the seeds from the seed room floor and i wonder if you could yeah. talk about that a little bit I, <laughs> <laughs> when i was renting at true love and so when seeds fall to the seed room floor because there's no way to definitively identify that seed with like its correct variety it's like a quote-unquote dead seed it's out of the collection it can't be kept i was thinking about about that and how like kind of the seeds from seed room floor kind of like get swept up with like dust and debris and like, you know, uh, riffraff and maybe get like swept up and like put outside somewhere, but they still grow and they start still alive and they still like have, they have like afterlives, right? So it's like they're kind of, they're grown for the collection. They're grown to be in this, in this collection as this variety, but then they have this like afterlife because they got misplaced or lost. I was thinking about like how they are then able to like live a different sort of life on their own terms if that makes sense that's kind of like removed from being like a mikado tomato and then then they maybe it gets to be it gets to be whatever whatever it wants so thinking about like kind of what happens to seeds when they get misplaced because they're extremely good at being dormant and extremely good at traveling and extremely good at like kind of like making a home wherever they end up in all likelihood they don't like they won't reach you know, maturity or produce their own seed, but like they might, are going to live a life of some sort without necessarily, you know, going through the full cycle. Maybe so. I was thinking with that, if I kind of would like to like to have like a seed debris collection and just kind of like dump it into a, into a field and see what pops up. I'm always like really into like volunteers, plants that pop up in your garden. Could be like weed seed, or it could be you know, seed that was dropped in previous seasons or whatever and talking back up and how, like, they weren't put there deliberately and they aren't wanted there, but, like, they're still, like, I'm here. <laughs> I got a life to live for however long that is until, you know, they get pulled or mowed over or something. But, yeah, I would really love that. Yeah, I think, I think I was talking about that with Julia. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they've been saving all the seed room se- uh, floor seeds for yes. you. Oh, that's that's what, Okay. We have a little jar with your name on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, man. I got, okay, so then I got I to gotta find somewhere to put to, to grow them. Yep. I often throw them into vacant lots or 
Yeah. You know, when we left our last farm field, I threw all the seeds we had that didn't have names and that were in a big jar together into one of the fields. I mean, that's part of why I love, and you mentioned it too, the Kapoor Tulsi and the Spilanthes, they both like to reseed. And this Wakatai that you're stand, sitting under, they all like to reseed in the in the garden. And we try to leave them if we can, because it's a beautiful kind of friend that's decided to pop up. I'm glad you popped up, <laughs> <laughs> that you keep popping up, even as you travel the world doing all these awesome seed and food related things. Thank you for, for everything, for all the time that you've spent at True Love and for continuing to kind of be part of our constellation in this way. Thanks for having me. I love I love being in the constellation. I love that. <laughs> nice. um, yeah. Cool. Oh, oh, how can people, um, do you want people to find you? Sure, yeah. I am c.keeve on Insta. Uh, I'm Christian Keeve on Twitter. I have some web page through my department. If you, if you like Google Christian Keeve, UKY, <laughs> that's it. I think. Okay, Christian Keeve, UKY, K E E V E. Yes. Awesome. Thank you. So that was last fall, 2021, at our farm in Pennsylvania, True Love Seeds. And I asked Chris Keeve to send an update about what's been going on in their seed life since then. So here you go. So it's been several months through a weird turn of events this past winter and spring. I've become a seed grower now for for True Love as well as for Experimental Farm Network and Ujama Seeds. And this is on two sort of three growing spaces here in central, uh, central Kentucky, just thanks to like some farmers in the area who uh, offered to let me use their land, which is very generous. But for True Love, I'm growing... Ooh, okay, so... Ethiopian blue mustard, uh, Jamaican pumpkins, a golden red amaranth, but the ones in the fields might be imposters, so we need to figure that out. But also uh, Della sorghum, white velvet okra, alpha calendula, and pulps and tomatoes. And I hesitate to like list all them off because I've had a lot of like pest and small animal pressure this season. So, and I, I don't want to like jinx it, but I'm most excited about the polyps and tomatoes, mainly because it's sort of a full circle moment, assuming I get them to produce a significant seed crop, which it looks like they are. So the, uh, the okra are producing, and the tomatoes are, the tomatoes are producing, which is really exciting. So we'll see. Uh, but I, I'm optimistic. But also, and this is so this is just me working as a seed grower, but it's also part of my dissertation work for my PhD here at uh, UK, which is, I guess, loosely about the like quote unquote cooperative geographies of seed work. By which I mean, this is, this is inspired by a lot of stuff that a lot of uh, seed folks have been saying for years, especially Arab Wallace around the ways in which the cooperative politics of seed networks are really important for like pragmatic reasons around sustainable and robust agrobiodiverse food systems across spaces and across geographies, but also how these 
cooperative models run seed work produce other forms of mutual support and exchanges of like politics and ideas and community through the movements and mobilities of these seeds. And through that, I've been working with True Love for a few months. So now this summer, I guess, we're soft launching this idea that is tentatively called, I guess the working title is the True Love Seeds Listening Project. So a bunch of the growers are will be having some planning meetings in the months to come, putting together a sort of critical look at True Love's network model, thinking about like what benefits seed growers are getting out of being in the network, as well as what how the network can be improved, as well as being able to better articulate what the network is and does to the world. Um, so there are some like really exciting conceptual things around cooperativity, but also you know some maybe creative projects that might come out of it, right? So thinking about like an, an interactive map, for example, in which people could really see where their seeds are coming from and where they're being grown. But also like theoretically, if like when people buying the seeds could put themselves in the map if they want to see or something and give a little more of like a visualization around how these seeds are moving and, and how they're adapting to different locations and contexts and how they're being selected in different locations and contexts, stuff like that. So we'll see. But I'm excited uh, for, for what's to come. Thank you so much to Chris Keefe for visiting us and doing this interview with us and sharing all of these gems of information and perspectives. And thank you, listener, for listening and sharing this episode of Seeds and Their People with your loved ones. Please also subscribe and leave a positive review. Thank you also for supporting our seed keeping and storytelling work by ordering seeds, calendars, and more from our website. TrueLoveSeeds.com And again, please sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash trueloveseeds. We can really use your support. And remember, keeping seeds is an act of true love for our ancestors and our collective future. Blessings.